Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brother Cousins podcast. Today's episode 85. And Jared Jeffrey and your host, Christopher, are going to continue with our series on the take heed statements of Jesus as we find them recorded in the Gospels. Uh, We've been on this kick for a while. We're going to be on it for several more episodes. So um, buckle up because we're going to we're going to attack one that may get into some folks kitchen. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 12. Verse 13, uh, that's the beginning part of the text, uh, though we're going to continue through verse 21 because there's some connected passages here. So Jeffrey's going to take off reading this passage where Jesus tells us to beware of covetousness. So we're going to talk about this passage and the parable that Jesus followed with it. And then we're going to try to define the term covetousness, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what that word actually means in the scripture and talk about some other cross-references, and maybe how we can better heed Jesus' warning. So, uh, Jeffrey, take it away, man. Yeah, so we'll start in Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So after Jesus is approached by these brothers who were fighting over an inheritance and they're begging him, or at least one of them is telling him to, you know, be the judge or the arbitrator um, in dividing this inheritance. He then, after telling them to take heed, does what he normally does. And he provides this parable to expound upon the initial warning. And he says in verse 16, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? So is this the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God? This is a fantastic parable. And Jeffrey, thanks for placing it in the context of this discussion. The first thing I want to notice here is the attitude of this man who who yells out to Jesus in the crowd. It's almost like this is something that would come out of a comic. I mean, how would you feel if you were the other brother and essentially your other your brother is asking Jesus to put you on blast in front of a crowd, right? Because you guys are haggling over an inheritance. And I, it just makes me wonder what that relationship between those two brothers was like in this instance. Because, you know, when people pass away and there's loss and then there's inheritance and there's something to be had or lost. People get really squirrely. I've seen some people who you wouldn't think would behave that way, uh, do some pretty surprising things whenever inheritance was concerned. Uh, I, I literally saw someone at my great aunt's funeral, um, one of her deceased husband's children before the funeral was asking about who was going to get some oil rights. And I, I, my dad was like, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> it's just insane. And this is kind of like that to me. Like the, 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 the desire for the thing caused people to abandon decency and good taste in charity, right? Love. 
So, you know, it, it is pretty common, Christopher. And, you know, I, I may not have seen it at an actual funeral, but I mean, I have seen people um, in families, members of the church allow, you know, the death of a loved one. Grief is obviously involved, but mm-hmm. there seems to be greed involved as well. And they turn their sights on the things that they can get very quickly and allow those things to impact their relationships with their family. And they, in their grief and greed, say or do things that I think they likely regret years later. Yeah. I think we need a new word for people who are greedy when they're sad, and it should be called grief. Or not. We'll add it to the dictionary. Thank you. Oxford will be happy. Uh, and, and this parable that Jesus gives, I don't know if you guys remember growing up in Stratford, O.A. Savage calling this guy the seven-eyed fool. Do you remember that? Because, it, yeah, I mean, at least in, in some uh, versions of this parable, he used seven personal pronouns, I, I, my, what I'm going to do. Uh, and so I just think that's a really interesting word picture. Think about this guy as the seven-eyed fool. You know, he said that so much, I thought that that was just kind of the common phrasing. No, it was an OAism. So, yeah, I, I love the response. Jesus first says, basically, not my circus, not my monkeys, right? I, this is really none of my business. But then he actually strikes at the heart of the matter. And, you know, Jesus could have arbitrated that. I mean, he could have brought that to resolution. But I think what Jesus would have rather done in this situation is, for at least both of those brothers to heed the words of his parable and then figure it out themselves. This idea of people being wrapped up in their possessions. And I love it. Jesus said, be on your guard against covetousness for a person's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So I think it makes sense at this point to define our terms, right? I know Jared, your word guy, love to define our terms. So uh, can you help us understand what this word covetousness means? And what are some of the implications about Jesus' use of this word here? Okay, so first right off the bat, I'm, I'm going to use this passage to talk about something completely unrelated to our topic. I love it. Uh, it has been propagated, especially of late, that Jesus was a communist. And, and I, I get the feeling this is probably a younger brother here wanting the older brother's share of the inheritance and to be divided. Easy there. <laughs> um, Jesus says, what, what does this have to do with me? So we can lay to rest. Jesus was a communist. He was not concerned with governments of men. So Only Jesus a communist sounds like something a communist would say, but I digress. Like but regardless, he, he teaches both sides here. And, and everybody, he doesn't say to him, and he said to them to take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Now, we can get into breaking down the Greek with this, and I would put everybody to sleep. And I think there's some value in looking at the Greek because it's a beautiful language, and a lot of things are symbol-type language, stuff we don't really – well, no, we do. But the, the simple explanation is fraudulency or extortion – but it, it breaks down to this idea of holding more mm. and, and a desire to hold more. I need more. And so that's a really good picture of I just can't get enough. And it doesn't matter how much I'm holding. I need more. And I have a really good 
mental picture for you. I have a two-year-old. If there are toys being played with, she can't play with all of them, but she doesn't want someone else to play with them. And and she's figured out, hey, if I'm not playing with this, then someone else is going to be given the opportunity to play with it. So I'm just going to stack my arms as <laughs> absolutely as full as I possibly can because I don't want someone else playing with my toys. And it doesn't matter that I can't hold them all. And when, when I find one I can't hold, I'll let one drop and grab it and just keep that process of trying to hold all the toys, right? Yeah. Yeah, we've all seen children do that. And it reminds me, Jared, of that passage in Ecclesiastes 4 and 6 that says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind, right? It's just, right. it's, you know, this concept that it's it's better to have half as much with peace than twice as much with strife. And as something Laura and I, a phrase we use that if something cost is going to cost you your peace, it's too expensive. Yeah, there you go. And I'm a big proponent of allowing the Bible to define itself. And Paul, in the book of Colossians, tells Christians to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And and I think you could take this whole list and call it idolatry. It's And as a simple definition of idolatry, I would say it's that which you pattern your life after or that which moves you in your life. And specifically an idol would be a corrupt thing, item that moves your life. A, a perverted sense of what's most important. And so we we have this covetousness, which is an idolatry to us. And it, it's what we pattern our life around. We're this two-year-old laying in the floor trying to lay on top of all of our toys because I can't have enough toys. Mm-hmm. I need them all. I can't share. And, and this is, it doesn't matter what's going on around me. I've got to hold on to these things. Yeah. That's a pretty helpful definition. You know, that, that idolatry. I love that idea of what, whatever moves you uh, is, is your idol. You know, there are people who moved by a great many things. Um, and uh, you know, we would sometimes we would call that temptation. Right. But it's just another way of looking at it. You know, we're drawn to please the thing that we like the most. Right. And and I would give the difference the difference here when Paul tells Timothy what the characteristics of an elder are supposed to be and a deacon, he says not given to wine. And and the Greek word there doesn't have anything to do with greed necessarily, mm-hmm. but it's that concept of what you're given to. So we can be tempted to want more, to to do more, to be more focused on ourselves, which I think you could boil covetousness right down to. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, we can cover that up. But at the end of the day, what are we given to? Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about how verses 16 through 20 or 21 elaborate on the warning that Jesus gave with that, that definition of covetousness in mind. Because I think, Jared, you, you hit the nail on the head there. How does the parable expound upon the warning? Uh, I think there's a couple of ways. The first and most obvious to me is that there was a man who he had values and the value was his stuff. And he made radical changes in his life based on what he loved, which was his abundance, right? You know, people will 
will deconstruct their lives and, and build their whole life around uh, a career or a hobby or, uh, you know, an adventure, right? A lifestyle that they want to live. Like, you know, it makes me think of people who like sell everything and get an RV and, you know, go across the country. And I'm not saying that's bad, but you look at someone who's made a radical life-changing adjustment because they were seeking after a particular way to live. And that's what this guy did. I think we see a very obvious focus, obvious focus on self. We're outside of, and this is going to get into a different topic, and and I think maybe it'll segue into some things we want to talk about. We're outside of God's intent and how he created us. And we see that particularly in the picture of Jesus and his life. He did not come to be ministered to. He did not come to live an easy life. He could have been born in a palace. And instead, he was born to a blue-collar family. His mom conceived as a virgin, which brought ridicule upon him. We see in John 8, I think, in particular. Mm -hmm. And he lived his life. He says, I have nowhere to lay my head. I don't have a home. I don't have a home base. His focus was everyone else, as opposed to this rich man. And, And his biggest problem was himself. And what he needed to take care of for himself. And and not that, and and just caveat this, because it needs to be said, not that having retirement accounts is wrong, not Mm -hmm. that saving for the future is wrong. It really comes down to a conversation I was having with someone this past week. Why are you doing those things? Um, Modesty is a really good example of this. How do you define what's modest and what's not? And, and the simplest way is to ask someone, why do you want to dress that way? Um, I generally dress in a way that I'm not going to be noticed. Now, this is because I'm several pounds overweight and would like to not be noticed as being several pounds overweight. But I just I don't want to be noticed when I walk into a room, when I go somewhere um, for good or bad. And so we, we get into the heart of the issue, which is what this really gets at. You beware of covetousness and guard against it because it is a gross heart problem. It And Jesus shows this when he says, your life is not about what you own. And Christopher, this is a really good time for you to bring in a definition, the old Native American saying that you I've heard you say many, many times about oh, possessions. Oh yeah, we, uh, we used to have a guy that worked on the farm with us, uh, Dave Mills. And he said that there's an old Indian saying, that if you owned more than 10 possessions, then your possessions owned you. Uh, and, and it really does speak to the fact that the more you have, the more you have to worry about, the more you have to worry about losing, the more you have to maintain. Right. Um, you know, let's say that, you know, you want horses. Well, you got to take care of the horses. Uh, if you want a big acreage, well, guess what? You're going to have to invest time and treasure to maintain that acreage. Jeffrey, if I'm not mistaken, I think that's one of the reasons that you sold your acreage and now live in a smaller place in town is because you rearranged your values to not have to revolve around land management and could spend more time doing kingdom work, which I applaud you for that. I think it's really uh, sober-minded. But yeah, the more stuff we have, uh, it it gets its hooks into us. You know, Jared, it's like that... that, um, concept we talk about from time to time the dead man has nothing to lose because he has nothing but the man who owns a lot 
has a lot to lose. And so he may make choices in life, not based on important stuff, but on unimportant stuff, which kind of segues into one of the other points in this parable is that this man in his value proposition of he valued his stuff, he rearranged his life based on his intentions and his plans for the future for his stuff. And then the irony happens that God says, ha ha, tonight you're dead. And then all the stuff that you made and all the preparations and all the life altering decisions that you made around temporary stuff, what now? And that's the truth of covetousness is it, it causes us to fixate on an idol that is essentially temporary. So is anyone else just, the the more we've got into this, the stronger the urge has got to go to Ecclesiastes. (laughs) I mean, I already did, but (laughs) so the point of Ecclesiastes is given in the end. And then actually it drives exactly at Jesus's point here. Your life consists of more than what you own. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole of man. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon. I think at times it it feels like lament as I read it poetically. Mm -hmm. At times it feels like just sober understanding of the things that you own will be left to someone else. You can amass great wealth and your son can be an absolute dummy. And and so what you've done is left great wealth to a dummy. Yeah. Pardon if you have kids listening that you don't want saying that word. Yeah. Well, Um, but there's a tie-in in in Proverbs, Jared. Proverbs 20 and verse 21 says, an inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end, which it... The the trouble with leading your things behind to someone is that those gifts may actually be curses. You know, Dave Ramsey is famous for saying, you know, he talked about his kids, you know, and, you know, do we have a lot of money? And he said, yeah, he said, we do have a lot of money because we're good with money. And he said, and whenever I die, you're going to gain an incredible inheritance. And he said, but if you don't have the moral character to handle that, it will destroy you. And that's true because we see people who, who get inheritances, who get trust funds, who get lotteries and the weight of that blessing apart from the moral character to handle it will destroy them. And, and here we have a twofold teaching that comes out of this parable and Jesus is warning about being covetous. It's about our focus and our understanding, the ability to look long term. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't remember exactly how the saying went, but I read a saying recently. The fool is concerned for today. The man is concerned for the next, no, let's see, a year or years. And a wise man is concerned about generations. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing, as we said, there's nothing wrong with this understanding or this idea of putting away, leaving an, an inheritance, being a blessing to generations to come. Right. But the bigger idea is to teach them the same values, to have what is commonly referred to in, at Northwest Church of Christ as the eternal perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's what we see missing in the, in the desire of this guy to have Jesus mediate between he and his brother arbitrate really between he and his brother and then this man that had greater possessions 
than he had ever had and just sock it away and do good for myself. I've got it on, I'm on easy street, right? Yeah. And, and we have there the teaching from Ecclesiastes. Again, the, the sober understanding, it's not bad that the stuff you own is going to go to someone else. It, it's a fact of life. But if you've centered your life around amassing stuff and there's a broader context here, which we haven't gotten into yet. But well, I'm going to keep it simple right now. I, around amassing stuff and eventually your time is up. All the stuff you amassed is no longer yours. And Ecclesiastes 5, 18 and 19, it says, Behold, that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh unto the sun all the days of his life which God giveth him. For it is his portion. Every man also to whom God has given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. And so we have the counter there, even in the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon has the understanding of this stuff's going to be left to someone else. It's okay to enjoy it. It's about our perspective. It's about our heart. And, and there we open the door to covetousness, which is an idolatry, turning our head. We can covet more than just money mm -hmm. or things. And I'm not sure exactly where you were planning to go next, but this idea of what draws at your heart what what motivates you to get out of bed what drives you every day what is your desire in and for your life every day and yeah. if it's anything other than the kingdom of god and his righteousness then it would fall into this category of being covetous or idolatrous right it yeah i mean the, the place i wanted to go jared was it's a similar it's actually identical context, really, to what Jesus addressed in his parable. We find Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6 to address an issue with the church where people were taking each other to law. And Paul condemned this. And he said to have, in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, which is another way of saying, watch out, take heed, right? Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so if you want to link together this idea of idolatry and, and greed, which he says here, and that's what was driving this practice. People here were taking their brothers and sisters in Christ to law over disputes about money. And Paul says, if you are going to court, you've already lost. It would be better for us to lose our money than to take a matter that's a matter of the kingdom before a human court. And it's a loss whenever we esteem gaining money or keeping our money, even if it's rightfully ours, we esteem that more than unity and love. And that was really the core issue with these two brothers. They, they didn't have enough love to say, you know what? I would just rather you get more and be unfair and keep the relationship. And that's, I think what Paul was addressing here too. So there is an underlying truth in this passage that I think Paul hits on in verse two. Mm -hmm. 
And that is if you were part of this kingdom, the highest court in the land. So for us in America, the highest court in the land is not the Supreme Court. Do you not know the saints will judge the world? Mm-hmm. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Yeah. The highest court we know is the court of the kingdom of God. And that's a difficult truth to grapple with when you see and, and how much impact the Supreme Court has on quote unquote our daily lives. And they do. Mm-hmm. But again, our perspective is entirely different. Yeah. Our perspective is about the kingdom. And so if I have a problem, I don't take it to the court. I take it to the church mm-hmm. and we mediate and we arbitrate and we do so because our concern isn't necessarily who's legally right and wrong in a case, but what is good and best in the kingdom. Maybe I'm wrong because a brother has seen that I have a problem with greed and the best way he knew to point it out to me was to try and short me a little bit. Now that's not providing things honest and and so forth, but there's, there's deeper teaching here Mm. that brings things in front of the church where deep spiritual and personal truths are discovered because of our connection we have with each other. Things like idolatry and okay, let's, let's bring drunkenness in and, and say it's a drunkenness problem at home where I'm not affecting anyone else. I'm not getting in my car and driving. Is that, sin not still displeasing to God? Does it not make me stand in jeopardy before my creator? Mm -hmm. If the answer is yes, then I have a high court that is made by the creator to help me get right. And this idea of covetousness, which you see here, and and I wish Jeffrey would chime in on this because he really did a good job talking about this when we were talking about it last night, about things that are terrible heart problems. If I knew that someone was on the verge of a heart attack and I didn't say, Hey, you need to go get this scene about get professional help. Then I would be doing that person a disservice because I don't want to offend them. I don't want to get in their kitchen. I don't want to cause a problem here. How much worse is it when we can see these other problems and go, I don't want to offend them. And, and I know I'm, I'm diving off into other topics, (laughs) <laughs> well so I, I don't remember what i said that was so profound but i'm going to trust you on that um, <laughs> and say that that's a rarity but I, i'm going to bring the conversation back to a passage that i've just been ruminating on a lot lately and that's um hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 um it says strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the lord see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of god that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Mm-hmm. So in that passage, you know, a lot of the time, whenever I read this passage, I focus a lot on pursuing peace or striving for peace with, with all people. And that in your relationships, there can be roots of bitterness that come up and it can defile different people. And and I believe that that's very true. And I think it's something that you're hitting on there, Jared, but something that I have not ever really paid much attention to in this passage is the other action statement that is made here. He doesn't just say to pursue peace with everyone. He also says to pursue holiness, to have that end result of sanctification, that purity. And he says that without that, 
you're not going to see the Lord. And that if you don't have that type of holiness and purity in your life, then that also is going to lead to the end of bitterness and defiled relationships and defiled people and the way that your sin can discourage others that, you know, in a congregation that things are going really well. Now, all of a sudden, you know, this sin problem is brought to light and it's really discouraging or, you know, you're defiling the weak that are taking your example and the, the temptation and sin that you have in your life and allowing that to become that stumbling block for them. And, it really just causes a lot of problems and what it does ultimately besides just defiling others and discouraging others, you also get into this idea of how it brings about opportunity for people to blaspheme God Yeah. in Romans two and 21. It says you therefore who teach one another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal. Do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So as we think about as a whole, the Christian faith, we believe in living these moral lives according to the scriptures. And Christians try to convince people to come to Jesus and live according to his instruction that holiness and sanctification principle. But then whenever we turn right around and we're involved in these sinful habits, it opens the door for people to revile God and blaspheme God because of the representation that we have made of his kingdom. Yeah. Jeffrey, I could not agree more that (laughs) we sometimes we just open up God's people and the church. We just open it up to ridicule through our inconsistency, through our hypocrisy, through our sin or unrepentance. And our job as the nation, the people of God, is to let the word of God dwell in us and live in us so fully that not that it doesn't cause scorn, that it causes glory. And it reminds me of the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 4 where Moses is talking about the law and it says, see, this is Deuteronomy four and five. See, I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord, my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. That will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord, our God is to us whenever we call on him. And what great nation is there? that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. And wouldn't it be great, guys, if we in the church could live the gospel so much that instead of inviting ridicule and criticism, that we inspired awe because what we were known for, instead of being harsh and judgmental, being loving and helping, right? And that people would look at the results Instead of a root of bitterness, a bitter root that bore a bitter fruit, they would see a fruitful vine. And they would look at the way God's people live and operate so consistently out of love and say, that's something I might could get behind. But we've got work to do. So this is a thought that, as you just talked, Christopher, that made me wonder. You know, whenever going back to Luke chapter 12, whenever mm-hmm. these brothers come to Jesus 
And Jesus' response is, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Do you think it's possible that Jesus made that statement essentially to say, your heart is not with me anyways. So why are you coming to me to settle these types of disputes that are stemming from your covetousness? Hmm. I don't know. Uh, That's a good question. It's either Jesus is saying you're not mine um, or he's just saying, I'm going to stay in my lane. I don't know. I'd I'd have to think about that some more. Jared, what do you think? Yeah, uh, Jesus absolutely is the judge. And and we, we know passages where it talks about God being the judge, but we also see places where we see Jesus will will judge in the end. And it's not that he couldn't arbitrate. Mm -hmm. It's that he wasn't going to arbitrate this because it wasn't within his realm. It wasn't, I mean, they they had a a greater problem. And and again, I think that's why it gets at the heart Mm -hmm. and and being aware of covetousness and, and what drives your life is what you possess or what you can do or what, what about you? And, and that's what the, the real problem here was. What about me? And Jesus' response is effectively, what about you? <laughs> this is not my realm. And I came to do these other things. And, and I mean, we see they're in the crowd and we see his teaching before about being holy people and being Holy Ghost driven people. And then, I mean, so you came preloaded because you're not going to hear that teaching and go, yeah, this, this, this inheritance really matters. So they came and completely closed their ears to the teaching that Jesus gave. And he, he just called them out for it. It, That's a, uh, I hadn't considered that Jared, but it reminds me of who we tend, we tend to call the rich young ruler, right. Who Mm -hmm. came to Jesus and he said, I've gone this far. What else do I need? And Jesus said, one thing you lack to sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. Right. And he made he made a decision based on his values. Yep. And we have more episodes to go with this topic. So it's difficult for me because... Well, it, it's not difficult. The context of this is specifically the possessions you have, mm-hmm. your life being made of the abundance of your possessions, the definition of the, the two-year-old sprawling on the floor to try and grab as many toys as possible, and then squalling because one got away. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's it's this idea of the heart, and that's why it's so important in First Corinthians. That's why it's so important in Hebrews it's this matter of what have you set up as your God and have you made stuff your God in this life? Mm-hmm. Are you looking to make sure that you've got it on easy street or do you understand that you serve the creator of all that spoke life into existence and that it, that is still active today and can influence. I, I know there are going to be some people that disagree with that and, and I pray that you give me some grace, but God has promised to take care of his people. We can go to Hebrews 5, where God says, don't let your life be about covetousness. Be content with the things you have. For I have said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God has promised to take care of us. And where is our trust? Is our trust in our ability? 
to amass goods and wealth for ourselves? Or is our trust in we serve the eternal creator? And that's the teaching of the seven-eyed fool. His focus was on this earth. And God says your your life is is being called due, and now this stuff that you made so important isn't even yours. And, and there's another truth there that transcends this idea, and, and I, I think this is what Jesus wants us to focus on. This stuff doesn't matter. It's not going to be yours. Whose will the things be that you have amassed? But there's something eternal that you're going to have to live with forever. And that is the decisions you made and how to serve God while you walk the earth. Yeah. And that's yours. Yeah. To, to your point, Jared, I, I do believe in God's provision. Um, in Romans 8, 31, Paul says, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so I think the point there is like, look, if God cares enough about you to give you his only begotten son, Jesus, to provide for your eternal life, do you think he's capable of making sure that you get three hots in a cot? <laughs> I mean, you know, and I know that we're not guaranteed that, but it's it's a it's a extension of our faith that do we really believe that God is able to give us the very best according to his grace and wisdom and an over fixation on our physical well-being and you know whether it be our health or our wealth or whatever we will reflect that and so I, I think that's an important bit there so just for quick reference I reversed my reference it's Hebrews 13 5 not 5 13 okay so to, for those to, keeping score at home I already gave you grace, so sorry. So, guys, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this back to maybe a, a, a different section of this, and that's you know, Jesus warns to take heed, and you know we we've talked about how it can defile and discourage others, but I think there's one more component that that I want to think about with this, and it's in light of a teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because I think that 1 Corinthians chapter 5 illustrates very well how serious of a matter that this really is. You know, a lot of the times whenever we pull up 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we think about the disciplinary action that the church has towards somebody who is sexually immoral. And in fact, it says in verse nine, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Mm-hmm. But then in verse 11, he goes in more depth and he says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, depending on what version that you are reading, some say greed, some say covetousness mm-hmm. or as an idolater reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So he expands this disciplinary action that could be incurred. It doesn't just include somebody who's sexually immoral, but a member of the congregation who's completely consumed with their greed and their covetousness. And it has become an idol in their life to the point that we've made multiple times um, in this episode. But this right here illustrates the severity and why it's so important 
to take heed because I believe the intent of first Corinthians chapter five is number one, a protective mechanism for the church. That's mm-hmm. why he says to purge out the leaven because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Um, and so you want to maintain the purity and the integrity of the church, but it also is intended to help that person who is consumed with their greed to wake up mm-hmm. and recognize how this is impacting their life. And whenever their family in the kingdom of God no longer eats with them, no longer has anything to do with them. It is meant to open their eyes, to help them come to themselves, to confess their faults one to another, to change their life in that way so that they can enjoy the benefits of the kingdom yet again and the support of their family yet again. Okay. I have, I have a question that points to the difficulty of that application. I think Jeffrey, you're correct. Like that is, that is the understanding that is a, that is the intended uh, teaching in this passage. Here's where I think we have trouble. If someone has been sexually immoral, it's pretty obvious they either did or they didn't. Right. Um, but here's the challenge about someone being greedy. It's not black and white. You know, there may be someone who is maybe just a little bit greedy. Um, or there may be uh, someone who is just a little preoccupied with this world stuff. And we might say that they're worldly. I think that's a, that's a, uh, American, you know, 20, 21st century description for someone, uh, who's just maybe dipping in their toes. How, how do you guys do that? I mean, cause it's pretty easy to say, yep, yeah, well, you definitely committed sexual immorality, but how greedy does somebody have to have before we really like, approach them about it and say, Hey, I think this really may be very serious. I think I'm going to take part of this and Jared's probably going to take another part of this because there's two key words that are very near to one another in proximity in this passage that I think shed some light and helps us answer that question. Okay. So the word covetousness or greed in this particular passage, whenever you go back to the Greek means one eager to have more, especially what belongs to others. And if you dig in a little bit more to some of the, the lexicons and the definitions, um, it's somebody who's a defrauder, somebody who is willing to defraud maybe their brethren so that they can gain more. And, you know, we bring it back to the context of Luke chapter 12. You've got two brothers that are fighting over an inheritance. And I'm going to take some liberty with that passage a little bit and, and present a hypothetical maybe the brother was trying to get some ill-gotten gain in that inheritance. And that's what was causing the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that we see examples of people who are willing to defraud their brothers and sisters in Christ and take advantage of them so that, so that they can try to satisfy a greed that will never be satisfied is what Ecclesiastes tells us. So, and so I think that's a good litmus test there is, whether or not people are willing to defraud their brothers and sisters in Christ, because that leaven will start to impact the church in a way that presents the opportunity for the bitterness that's talked about there in Hebrews chapter 12. So do you think that could be a good example of that is Ananias and Sapphira from the book of Acts, right? Who sold the land, kept back part of the price and presented as the whole Peter accused them of trying to defraud the Holy ghost. You think that's a good example? I would say yes. And that it, they had a definite heart problem. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea of hedging your bets. 
my heart is not all in, but I want to look all in. And, and so here we have the definition of hypocrisy. They're not, you know, saying one thing and doing another. They're presenting themselves as having or being about this business. I'm showing myself to be all in when I really hedge my bet and I'm holding some back. There's a heart problem there. They're defrauding and they're, so we don't necessarily have this idea specifically of covetous that they, they wanted more. Maybe hypocrisy is better. So I'll back off a little bit on the yes and say, but we have a pretty good picture here. I, I just, I'm not ready to give it all up. I'm not ready to, sh- to have my heart truly convinced that I'm, I'm all in here. Um, you know, Jeffrey, I love to get into the Greek and then try and simplify it down and, and boil some, some ideas down. You can take this greed and, and take the base words and, and just say possessed with more. Mm-hmm. I'm possessed with having more. Whatever it is, it, it doesn't matter. I need more. And and so we're back to this definition we gave in the beginning of, you know, whatever. If you have more than 10 possession, possessions, they possess you. And I think that heart problem really hits at all of the rest of these things. And idolatry is very interesting to me. It literally means one who serves images is how you could break that down. This G3000 is the word that comes out as service. So it's rendered worship or we would read it a definition as an idol worshiper but it's one who serves images and it doesn't necessarily matter what that image is once we understand we were created to be image bearers so often our idol is nothing more than satan himself and his the way he lives Mm -hmm. the way he behaves i want what i want i want to be my own god i want to be my own say so my own highest moral authority and then we have all the rest of these problems. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And that's why it is so insidious because what got Eve, and I love taking it back as far as we can go to our, our furthest back ancestor. So let's, let's take it to Eve. What got her to change her mind? You'll not die. You'll be as gods. And God knows this. He's holding back from you. You can be your own moral authority. It's sad that she didn't realize that she already was as God. She was already God's image bearer. And, and that she wanted more. Right. We want to bear our own image. Yeah. And there's an insidious lie that because we're created as image bearers, we will only ever be an image bearer. And the image we often bear is that of Satan. You get these things. And so we have this teaching specifically about the fornication that was going on. And we want to really tie this idea down to that specific idea. But Paul says all of these problems that are heart problems that show I want what I want more than I want what God wants for me and of me, they all come from the same place. Mm-hmm. And I've made myself an image. And what I, I don't see is that I am the image bearer of Satan. And so I guess the, the short version of all of this, Christopher, to answer that question, uh, since Jared and I have both kind of gone on, is I would argue that all of these things are obvious. You know, as as obvious as somebody who's being sexually immoral is, a drunkard or a reviler. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You know, I'll use the reviler as an example here. If, if you've got somebody in a congregation that is reviling their brothers and sisters to other brothers and sisters and planting those seeds of discord, that's obvious. It may not be immediately obvious, but that fruit starts to tell out. And I believe that with these this heart of covetousness and idolatry, greed, it becomes apparent whenever you think about people's willingness to defraud their brothers and sisters and take advantage of them to as a means to an end. Mm-hmm. And that, that end is to try to satisfy an unsatisfiable desire for silver or gold or dollar bills or Water ETC, et cetera, et cetera. Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> yep. Coffee. So, yeah. Well, okay. So, I, you know, I appreciate you guys going back to the definition to put a finer point. So I think what you're saying is that if someone is living in such a way that really feels this definition, it's going to be more black and white than maybe we might first imagine. So I appreciate that clarity. It will eventually. And and here's the key. What drives your life? And and are you letting people into your life? Because there's so much of what God has called us to that is out in the open where we're not hiding from one another. Mm -hmm. And if we're hiding from one another, it's usually because we're hiding something right here that we don't want to expose we're not willing to get rid of, and I don't want to take a chance of you having an opportunity to see it. Yeah. And so I can cover it by covering myself. And largely we've made that, largely our society has made that possible by we stay super busy. The world keeps us tied down with all of our activities and things we need to be a part of. And now we're getting into a different topic, but <laughs> it still comes down to, and, and to oversimplify, where is your heart? Do you trust God? And if you don't, then you're going to be a reviler. You're going to be a drunkard and try and check out of reality. You're going to be a swindler because you think you need to go out on your own and get what is yours. You're going to worship images, be a server of images because you can be your own highest moral authority. You have to take care and make sure that you're getting everything you're doing, even if that means at the expense of someone else, and giving God's kingdom a black eye and make sure that everything you want in life is fulfilled. So I know that we're moving, we're moving close to needing to finish up the episode soon. So I want to get to what I I believe is a very important aspect of this is that paired with a warning to take heed about the covetousness that we may have in our lives. What's the solution to the problem? You know, I'm, I think the the first verse that immediately pops into my head is taking a style such as Ephesians 4 and 28, where it says in verse 27, give no opportunity to the devil, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he have me have something to share with anyone in need. And I know that that's specifically talking about somebody who's a thief, but we've talked about the subject of defrauding your brother, taking advantage of them, so on. But I think Jesus gives a similar solution to the rich young ruler that you guys mentioned earlier, which is if that stuff is that important to you, sell it, get rid of it. And in the situation, I think of the, the two brothers that came to Jesus about the inheritance, sometimes the solution is give no place to the devil. And if that's going to be a major stumbling block to you, say, you know what? I don't need that stuff. You take it all. 
So Paul iterates or, or demonstrates rather how he has lived this out in his life and, and not as a brag, but as an example. And and it's difficult sometimes to for us to be an example and not for people to go, well, look at you puffing yourself up. But he gives specific examples on how he did that. In verse or Second Corinthians 12, verse 13, he says, For what in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for this third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. For if I love you more, am I to be loved less? And avoiding the often disputed terms in this passage, Paul points out to us what I've been driving at this entire episode, and it's your heart. It is what you see is most important. It is what your desire is. And Paul's desire in working with Corinth was their good, their ultimate and highest good, that the gospel would be served, that they would be servants in God's kingdom, that they would see the need they had to be active in that kingdom. And so he said, I am willing to spend and, and that spend of himself and to be spent in your service. And thus giving us an example of his heart and his willingness to do what was good for the kingdom of God, even when he had a right as an apostle, had a right as a worker of the gospel to eat of the gospel. There's a concept that has stayed with me. I don't think I've taught this passage in a sermon in, oh goodness, tell how old I am, 15 years, maybe pushing 20. So, well, no, probably not 20 yet. This concept that, David actually tells us of, and there's a truth here that we can take with us as we worry about and and take stock of where our heart is and what we find to be most valuable. In Psalm 37 verse 25 says, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. And our life consists of more than the things which we possess because we serve the God that created everything we could hope to possess. We didn't even get into concepts like gaining the whole world and losing your own soul and and all of these ideas and the teachings of Christ. But at the end of the day, it's about our hearts. It's about understanding who you serve and why you serve him and the fact that he is able to take care of you and has promised to do so in seeking the good of his kingdom. And we're going to pick right there to wrap this week. We appreciate you staying with us. I knew that once we got in on this topic, I would go long, and I did. And I pray that you'll forgive me and and appreciate you staying with us. As is our usual custom, Jeffrey, or we're going to close with a prayer, and Jeffrey is going to pray us out. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you, and we want to thank you for being a God that knows our very frame and being, knows the temptations that we have to pursue after things like money that we give place in our heart to the devil and the temptations. And we're thankful that in your wisdom, you've shared with us the understanding of how those things can take hold in our lives and how it can impact not only us, but others. We're thankful for the warnings that Jesus has given to take heed of 
covetous heart. And we're thankful that you've given us solutions to these problems. Lord, we pray that you will help us overcome any covetous we may have. We pray that money, possessions won't become idols in our lives, that you will fortify our minds and our hearts and focus on you and what's best for your kingdom rather than pursuing after things that we think will make us happy. We pray for that eternal perspective. We pray for strength. And we know that you can give it to us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.